We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Today, this is a subject we talk a lot about on Sideline Sanity. Let me read you a quote from this book that we're going to talk about. There is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they don't want to lose their jobs. That's a quote from Booker T. Washington, My Larger Education, 1911. 1911. Thus, the use of the term Negroes, but we could replace that with black, African-American, people of color, whatever you want the term to be in any era, and it would be the same. This has been going on for ages. And we have an interesting guest today who, in a very mild-mannered way, is going to tell you why he isn't buying into the narrative and how he has learned to go from black victim to black victor. It's a really important topic in this day and age where we're hearing that math is racist, that tests shouldn't be taken because they are culturally, you know, weighted toward one group of people or another, that you're either oppressed or you're the oppressor, that you have white fragility and white privilege and every other kind of uh, (laughs) race related infirmity that you could have, for lack of a better term. Adam B. Coleman is our guest, and we're going to get into it. And you're going to be surprised, I think, not really by his message, but the way he tells it. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Well, this is the book, Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms then encourage a victimhood complex. Adam B. Coleman is the author and he's with us now. This is, you know, as you can see, I've taken a lot of notes and, and looked through this. What I really, what caught me, Adam, right away was in the beginning when you, you list a bunch of questions, a bunch of why questions that are, and I'm just going to sample a couple of them because I want people to know where you're coming from and, and what you're really asking. It's right away, introduction questions. Am I actually broken? And if I'm broken, can I be fixed? 
Why did it feel as if my birth created an inconvenience for my father and a burden for my mother? Why is the choice of neglect commonplace for black men? Why are black women forgiven for failing to select better men? It's quite quite an introduction to the book. And the list goes on and they're really valid, interesting questions. Why did you want to start? I'll ask the first why. Why (laughs) did you want to start with all of those questions, Adam? Um, Actually, uh, it's interesting because even though it's the introduction, it's the very last thing that I wrote. Um, It was, uh, I was actually just telling someone recently that it was kind of a, um, like a mind vomit. Um, cause that, you know, I just finished writing everything else. So, you know, the introduction is a good way to introduce the rest of the book. So I, I had everything written, but it was also just a way for me to just finally lay out like all these, all these questions. So everything that you're reading there, I wrote basically an hour and a half. It was just one session. It just all felt natural. And I just put it all out there. Um, I've, I've become obsessed with questions and questioning things. Uh, especially the past five or so years, five, six years. Um, I've been wanting to write a book for uh, maybe like a couple of years prior. Um, I had an idea about writing a book about questioning things and asking questions. So this was kind of a way for me to utilize that. Um, but yeah, I, I think asking questions is pertinent to, to getting real answers. But I also wanted to do questions in the beginning because I'm not asserting anything per se, I'm just asking the question, right? So it's up for people to decide the answer to it. And I think questions are a lot, questions go a long way rather than asserting something towards someone. Right. People want to, you know, um, they want to respond with their own. Yeah. You know, I, I found it really intriguing. And as I said, the list, I just kept reading and reading. I was thinking, this is a guy who has a lot of questions and they're really valid. So you said five or six years ago, you, you started becoming obsessed with questions and, and what triggered that? It was there an event five or six years ago. What, what was it that, that made you start to really inquire? Um, I think it was more so, so I've had, I would say like a couple of journeys. I've had a personal journey as far as just improving myself, uh, becoming a better man. Um, and questioning, you know, my behavior and questioning the things I was doing, questioning my path forward. Um, and, and really like, I, I was really able to kind of turn my life around, um, and become more sustainable, more confident. Um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't believe I, you know, I, I would say low self-esteem depression, um, you know, in, in years of kind of this, this mentality, um, I had social anxiety at one point in time. So, Add all these different things, and these are self-made, uh, you know, kind of issues. And I, I really just wanted to take control of my life, so I started questioning all these different things. As I was going through that journey, it became kind of a political journey as well of questioning my personal politics, uh, questioning narratives, and questioning all these different things that are happening around me. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say it was kind of two journeys of just questioning myself. So um, if you were to meet me six, seven years ago on the base level, I'm the same mild mannered, nice person, mm-hmm. but I'm far more developed than I was before. Wow. And it it sounds to me like you did that 
very much out of your own change of heart about the way you were living your life. Some of the first questions you ask are about why your father left you and why maybe your mother chose the man that she did who would not stick around to help raise you. So right. I'm wondering how much you think that that the way you were raised led into what you then called a, a different kind of life that you weren't happy with. Uh, I think uh, if I'm to analyze my past, I would say it was a significant portion. Um, and the reason I kind of say that is because as I've gotten older and raising my son and being involved in his life, I see how much farther along my son is than I was. Um, much of my life was kind of questioning, am I good enough? Um, questioning if I can actually do certain things, not being very confident uh, at things that I should be confident about, uh, worrying about things that were unlikely to happen. Um, and, you know, experiencing panic attacks and, and, and all these different things uh, throughout my life. Um, I see that my son doesn't necessarily have, you know, obviously my son, he's, he's normal. He's a teenager. So he has moments of self-doubt. He has moments of, um, you know, depression, but he knows he can always come to me and talk to me. He knows that I'm always going to be there and we'll work through it. So these, these don't become his, uh, it doesn't become his identity. It just becomes moments, you know, right. depression, all these different things. It's normal to go through, uh, especially yeah. if something in particular is happening in your life. It's how you respond to it. It's how long you stay within it. And then right. you're able to move forward from there. So I just, I, I compare my upbringing versus my son um, and the impact of not having a male figure in my life. Like my mom never got married. She really didn't have a lot of relationships. So I really, and, and on top of that, we moved around a lot. So I really didn't have any male role models throughout my life. Um, and my son has me. He's always had me. I've always been in his life. Um, you know, basically until, you know, a little bit later, you know, because he has friends and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, you know, me and his mother aren't together, but I have him every weekend. Um, I talk to him throughout the weekend. Now he's homeschooling. So now I, I'm talking to him even more so. Um, oh, that's interesting. What, what uh, I, I got to stop you there and ask you what decided <laughs> the, the change to homeschool. Was this a change? You hadn't always been doing this? Right. This, this is actually the first time. Um, and what, why? For one, it was the pandemic and how it affected him. Um, he was, it, it was a bunch of different things. It was the pandemic and how it affected him schooling wise. Um, then on top of that, he had switched, uh, his mother had moved and went and moved to a school district that was, I would say not very good. Um, okay. and he was at a school district that was much better. He's very intelligent, loves school, loves learning things. Um, and he went from a school that challenged him to a school that didn't challenge him. And then on top right. of that was an unhealthy environment, uh, fighting, uh, kids doing drugs, stuff like that. Um, and he experienced bullying as well. Um, and he just, he got to a point, and I completely understand it, where he was like, I really don't want to go back there. Wow. And wow. I'm like, I'd be a bad father to be like, well, go anyways. So now we're trying to... Not only homeschool him, but he he wants to go to Japan after high school, 
he wants to do animation. So we've been discussing this for years. And so now we're trying to tailor his homeschooling experience with uh, preparing him for Japan um, and preparing him for life after high school. So that's so interesting. You've really taken a hands-on approach rather than, I guess, allow yourself to be told how he, he's going to be schooled by, uh, you know, a public school system and whatever that, that isn't, this is, again, I'm going to squeeze this in why I'm a huge school choice uh, advocate, because I do think every kid is different and the public schools, the government schools don't necessarily serve our kids the way they should and deserve to be, to be served. The, right. the book is black victim to black victor. Um, so you talk about not having a father around you, not really having that male role model. You, you talk about women in the black community as accepting men who aren't going to be around a lot of this ever this exploration this journey that you've been on revolves around your race it seems and so many of the questions are about this almost this di this division within the black community about you know the narrative mm -hmm. around whether you're a victim or a victor and I'm wondering when you started to question, was there a point where you felt like a victim and you decided to change course? Yeah. Um, so the, even the title Black Victim to Black Victor, uh, there's two things that come to mind. One, I, I didn't want the book to be a negative book, which is why I like the, the last chapters of Solution Chapters. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I also wanted it to reference not just like Black culture, um, but also talking about myself. Um, there were moments in my life where I felt like I was being, uh, I don't want to say victimized, but kind of where I had a victim mindset, um, where, you know, especially when you go through bouts of depression and, and, um, panic attacks and all these different things, you kind of are stuck in this life of despair and feeling like a victim, um, rather than changing your mindset and kind of moving forward. Um, so in, in many ways, the title is is referencing both the culture and, and myself um and so also throughout the book i try to be critical of everybody including myself um so i can be absolutely fair about about everything um so i know in the, throughout the book i never wanted to appear like uh i'm above the fray or anything like that right. um i'm specifically talking about everybody but i'm i'm also because you mentioned uh the mother situation I'm doing the taboo thing by critiquing my mom and her decision. Um, so, you know, my mother purposely didn't want to get married. My father was married, just not to my mom. So that's why I say, why didn't she pick a better man? Why did she choose a man who was unavailable, who had no interest in leaving his wife to be with her and have two children with him? Right. Because I see the deficiencies that I experience and, you know, personally, just psychoanalyzing. I see the deficiencies that my sister experienced. And I look at people who have a healthy, intact family and I see how much more whole they are. Yeah. Um, you know, the problems yeah. that they experience, obviously, nobody's life is perfect. But the problems no. that they experience <laughs> is beyond the basics. Right. And. and in many ways, I had to go back to the basics and learn, for example, how to be a man. 
I had to figure that out. And um, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of like the, the red pill community um, on, on YouTube and things of that nature, but basically it's men trying to teach men how to be men. Right. That's at the essence of it. Why? This is kind it's, of a growing recent phenomenon, yeah. isn't it? Like, say, in yeah. the last five years. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and one thing you'll notice is that a lot of the bigger names of, of men who are doing this are black. Right. So they're speaking to other black men and they're speaking to them. This is how you carry yourself. This is what you do. And the reason why they get a lot of viewership and they're getting a lot of listen because there's a lot of men who don't have their fathers in their lives. And so what I ultimately get to in the book is while we talk about this often for the black community, this is an American issue. Uh, mm -hmm. United States has the highest single parenthood rate in the world. We're number one, right? Normally we're number one for good things, but we're also number one for this, which is not a good thing. No, and, and so this is actually something that we can all relate to that family is extremely important. And if that family unit is broken, then everything else starts to crumble, right? And we just increase the odds of negative things happening for our kids. So obviously- I think that's an important statement yeah. you just made. We increase the odds of negative mm -hmm. things happening. We certainly know, and and I and having worked in covering pro, athlete, pro athletes for m most of my life, I know of these success stories. I know that there are those amazing- women out there, grandmothers and mothers who just work their tails off to raise their kids right. And it happens. But what you just said, I don't think can really be disputed, at least if you're honest about the data, that mm -hmm. your increase in odds of bad things happening is a result of, of a single parent household. And, you know, look, that's the, that data is standing the test of time. It's referenced by a lot of credible people. So I think that your one thing I really appreciated about your book and the approach is it's it's a very loving approach to the problem. You right. come right out and say, "I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not trying to be critical in a in a in a mean spirited way. I'm doing this as a way to analyze my own life and also to, so that other people might learn from this and might might change their minds." I think it's a really rational, positive way to look at these issues. We're going to take a quick break and return. Again, the book is Black Victim to Black Victor, Adam B. Coleman of Wrong Speak Publishing. And we'll get into some of that as well, because he's part of a really interesting organization um, right after this. Oh, my goodness. Inflation, inflation, inflation. It's all we hear about. And we're hearing that the average household is losing $4,200 a year in real wages. In other words, inflation has gone so high that even if your paychecks have gone up a little, you can't keep up with inflation. And so your buying power is less. So these short-term problems, which were promised, are going to be painful for a while, are really, well, they're just uncomfortable and hard to deal with. There are also long-term issues you need to look at, investments you need to make for your future, and precious metals has got to be one of them. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I trust when investing in gold and silver. Well, let me take you back to 2008. People who invested in gold back then saw huge gains while others were losing their retirements. So gold and silver through legacy precious metals can be an answer. You can incorporate it into your 401k. You don't have to invest a, a fortune in this. This is for people at every level of investment. So I'm going to encourage you to call legacy precious metals. You want to be proactive, you know, while there's still some time. 
Um, you can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. It's worth a call. Just get your questions answered. Or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. So, Adam, we talked about single-parent homes and... I, you know, one of the one of the curiosities that I had while reading the book is you are a a rarity. There aren't a lot of black conservatives. You acknowledge that and you talk about why that is. And mm-hmm. I would love it. Would you tell the audience, the listeners here, why you think being black and conservative is looked down upon in a in a big way in the black community um you know it's it's very interesting because i don't think a lot of people can define what conservative is (laughs) um and i think that's the case for a lot of black americans it's just like anything else if you were to break things down issue by issue by issue um you'd be surprised of how conservative minded a lot of black americans are um and how they're, for example, not for the woke stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They're not for these certain things. But arbitrarily speaking, they kind of go along with the flow. And I, I know a lot of apolitical black people who are surface level and just continue with the tradition, right? Uh, the tradition is fell for Democrats, right? Even though how they live their life isn't very liberal. Um, it's not very liberal minded, but it will always come back to Republicans are racist. Um, and anything that appears to be Republican, right? So even for myself, um, I, I've never claimed to be a Republican. Um, I, I will likely stay an independent. Uh, this upcoming election, probably the first time I vote for a Republican. Um, so I... I am conservative minded. I will say that. Um, but I'm not staunch. I'm, I'm relatively moderate. But even with that being said, I will always be looked at in a particular side eye because of me saying a certain thing or me advocating for a certain thing, which is, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, I don't know. To, to answer your question, I think it becomes a traditional thing. I think it becomes a very surface level thing, but it's very much so a racial thing. Um, it has been ingrained that Republicans are racist. That's how I got into politics. When I didn't know anything about politics, I was explicitly told that Republicans are racist, Democrats are for the black people. All right. And that was the start of my political journey. And that was actually my fault, my fault um, when it comes to learning about politics and learning about other things, because throughout the rest of my life, I would question things, right? But I didn't question that narrative. And that narrative led me down a completely different path. Um, and it's a path that today I'm, uh, I was able to take both sides and analyze how I feel about everything. And that's where I'm somewhere in the middle. Interesting. It, it, when, when you heard that, and, and again, it, it was sort of the default position for you that Republicans are racist. Mm-hmm. What was what was the evidence of that for you? Or was it just a, a, a message that you absorbed? So here's the amazing thing when it comes to um, 
when it comes to something that's bad faith, it doesn't matter what you say, right? So if you, Michelle, say, I really care about everybody. I want the black community to do really well. They will say that the only reason you're saying this is because of whatever bad faith you're a racist. Oh, you're just trying to cover for your real racist stuff, right? So it doesn't even matter. You can say the, the, the nicest way. The ni it doesn't matter because that, that message that, that I was told is a bad faith message. Mm -hmm. And so when I base my political ideology off of that bad faith message, it doesn't even matter uh, when the Republicans do something that is actually beneficial. It's always for some uh, menacing reason, something, yeah. uh, no, they're just doing this because behind the scenes they're doing, right? So some it's always ulterior motive that was not it's ulterior pure. motive. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. And so, and so how did you then, it takes a lot of courage to say, to, to question yourself to begin with, mm -hmm. to, to look at yourself in the mirror and go, am I being really intellectually honest with myself? Am I doing that? So what triggered that courage for you? What, what made you want to question that particular narrative? It was kind of by accident. Um, so I started getting into more podcasts and things of that nature. <clears throat> but also the, the political climate was shifting a little bit, right? The woke were kind of, and you know, they were housed in colleges, right? Yeah. But there would be like these, you know, random things that would happen and we would all kind of laugh at them because they were ridiculous. Um, so that got my attention into like the culture, culture war-ish things, but it, it seemed to be kind of contained and I just, I, it became interesting but I put in the book that the biggest thing was um, I was traveling abroad. Uh, I went to Madrid and I came across a guy while watching a football game um, who was originally from Manchester, and, but he had been living in Madrid in the Madrid area for years. Um, and we just hit it off just talking about football. I'm a huge uh, you know, football soccer fan. Okay. And so after I came back home, we would message each other every other day. And one day he told me he was for Brexit. And so I asked him why, because in my head, I, or and not just in my head, I heard on the, the news that uh, Brexit is for these racist British people who <laughs> don't want foreigners in their country and all this other stuff. So I asked him why. And he said, the United States would never allow an outside governing body to tell it what to do. And I said, that makes a whole lot of sense because I had good faith in him, mm -hmm. right? He has been nothing but nice to me. There's been no ulterior motives, nothing but polite, great guy, very intelligent. So I listened to what he had to say. And from there, he's actually the one who introduced Thomas Sowell to me. Oh. And I had never heard of him. Oh, that's yeah. a life changer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, he was a big, a big one. And, um, and actually, uh, I was able to go back to Madrid a couple of weeks ago. And we met up again and he was there with his, um, with his, uh, fiance and she was pregnant and everything. And, um, uh, there with my wife and, you know, had dinner and everything. And it, I think it was about two, 2018 is when I met him. So it was that long since we saw each other and just catching up. Um, but he just sent me a message this morning that his child was born. Oh. So, yeah. So congratulations from here to Madrid. We're sending good wishes to that. That, that is really interesting. This, you know, you get out in the world and you see more than what's just in your normal everyday life. Like you're all the way in mm -hmm. Europe 
when you get mm-hmm. this this acquaintance it's really interesting it's a it's a great story because you just you just never know what's going to to maybe open your eyes to another perspective and so it sounds like you met a friend who did um one yep. of the things i highlighted in the book you must understand that the largest threat to mainstream black ideology is the black conservatives because their existence alone challenges the narrative. And you go on, the black conservative appears as the rebel who contradicts the ideology and proves that the ideology is flawed. The existence of a counterthought within black culture puts the cult of black ideologues in a quagmire because it risks the exposure of their hypocrisy exaggerations and false narratives it becomes imperative that in order for the cult to survive the cultists must dismember the black conservatives legitimacy and blackness we're going to discuss that in depth after this quick break so adam i just got finished reading that paragraph out of your book about dismembering the black conservatives thoughts and all of this and and that, that the black conservative threatens the ideologues. Uh, and so how would you describe these ideologues and this, their, their need to push back on a black conservative? So there's, there's different levels to it. Um, if we were talking about on the higher level, um, I would say there's a term for it. They're called gatekeepers. Um, I don't think I really dive too much into that term in the book, but after I wrote the book, I started realizing this aspect to it. Um, it is gatekeeping thought, gatekeeping behavior, um, expectations, rhetoric, um, but it is making sure that you stay in line, right? And this is done not just by black people, but I would say also by um, left-leaning white Americans as well. Um, they get a pass when it comes to this, right? So we saw with the Clarence Thomas, situation. They got the the perfect opportunity to call him the N-word, perfect opportunity to talk about, is he really black, right? Mm-hmm. They got the perfect opportunity to do that. Why? Because the gatekeepers allowed that to happen, right? They're perfectly fine with, uh, as much as they talk about racism, as much as they talk about white Americans and how they, you know, their, you know, secret agendas and all this stuff. But when they outright say that he's an Uncle Tom and they outright say these these um, distasteful things, they're perfectly fine with it. And it's because they're not principled when it comes to that. Like the, the racism aspect is, well, it depends, right? And, and when they're trying to tell us is that racism is an evil, right? It's absolute, right? But unless it's someone <laughs> that I don't like, and unless it's, it, right? So there's always, there's yeah. always an excuse that's attached to it, right. which tells me that Racism is okay as long as it's done in a particular way, right? As long as this person looks like this or as long as it's directed at this particular person who I don't like and I don't agree with, right? Then it's fine. Um, so it's never principled when it comes to that. But these these particular people, they gatekeep the, the narrative and they gatekeep the rhetoric. And who are some, who are some no- yeah. notable examples of gatekeepers? Um. Well, for sure, you have the people who I call the ambulance, cha- uh, ambulance chasers, the Al Sharptons, Benjamin Crumbs, you know, these type of people, perfectly fine for them to gatekeep. Uh, but then you also have um, some of these, I would call them woke 
leftist uh, professors, uh, you know, the Ibram X. Kendi's, their, their attempt to gatekeep. But that mentality, it's not limited, right? You can see that mentality trickle down to all different economic levels because it's a mentality. Anybody can have it, right? So we could have a billionaire victim, right? Mm-hmm. Or we can have a broke victim, right? So the mentality spreads, but it is it is an acceptable mentality between the people who I call within this cult way of thinking that we all must do the same thing. We all must behave the same way. And if you step out of line, it is like stepping out of line within the cult. You don't question the leader, right? Or you, or in this case, it wouldn't be a particular leader. It would be the narrative. You don't question the narrative. Mm-hmm. But you have. How has that been received with the people around you who who maybe are gatekeepers or are falling in line with the gatekeepers and that narrative. How, how have you been received? Um, by them, I would imagine not great, but see, see, uh, I would say this, when I first started writing this, I prepared myself for any sort of negative, uh, negativity that would come my way. But then after I published it and I started speaking, I realized there's not that much negativity, Right. Um, I could probably say like in one hand, how much hate private messages and emails I've gotten. Wow. Right? And, and over a year, the reason being is because of how I say what I say, mm-hmm. um, because what you put out is what you get. Um, so there are people who say theoretically the same thing I'm saying, but they right. say it in a much harsher way. Yes. So they get harsh negativity. So I don't say it that way. Um, so you know, was the, that by design, messages. Adam? Was that like, yeah. you know, was that a premeditated or is that just who you are? It's both. Okay. It's both. Um, actually, when I started writing the book, I was kind of emotional, kind of angry because of the 2020 riots and everything going on. I actually had to go back and rewrite um, some chapters that I wrote earlier on because I realized my voice was too harsh and it didn't sound like me. So... That's why I'm always happy when people read it and say, you're very fair and your, mm-hmm. your tone is very good. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Because it, it didn't initially sound like that. Um, <laughs> I was overly emotional. Uh, and that's not, that's not normal for me. Um, I, I forgot your, your, no, that's a question. I, I had asked if, you know, if this was by design that you, that you wrote it in such an even keeled. And as I talked about yeah. earlier, this almost loving, compassionate fashion. You know, it is, I can hear it in your voice. It's who you are. I can see it in your countenance. It's very much in line with the person Mm -hmm. I'm meeting today. At the same Mm -hmm. time, it is a smart approach because you you really aren't putting people on on the defensive immediately when you're talking to them as equals and as people that you can completely relate to, because guess what? You've been there too. Right. Right. Exactly. Like I get it. Um, and actually that's what softened my tone as I was writing is because I went from like, how could they not see, right? I went from that and then I started reading more and researching more and writing more. And I was like, I get it. Mm. Like I get why people feel this particular way. You grew up in this particular environment and everyone tells you the same thing, Right. right? I get it. You turn on the TV and the media says the same narrative every day they show George Floyd, they show Derek Chauvin, right? And they say this negative thing. They put a black person who is of the top 1% economically to tell you that you're a victim and you'll never succeed. Like, I get why the average 
black person might feel this particular yeah. way. Yeah, that I think that bothers me more than anything else about that quote unquote narrative you talk about is mm-hmm. kids being told all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways that they can't achieve as much as other kids because of the color of their skin, that they're already victims, that math needs to be watered down for them, that science is racist, that math is racist, that the soft bigotry of low expectations is the famous line. That Mm -hmm. is the thing that I I can't tell you that makes my blood boil because if I were on the receiving end of that message and, and you know what, growing up in the seventies as a girl, I was, I heard a lot of those things, you know, that Mm -hmm. I couldn't do this or I couldn't do that. I wasn't pretty enough to do this. I wasn't athletic enough to do that. Okay. So, you know, we do, we, and we absorb all of this. And for young people, it's hardest because they're just developing their sense of self. They often don't have the perspective or the molding to say, to be taught. Why are you listening to anyone else tell you what you can or cannot do? It is you who is capable of determining what you can or cannot do. And to me, uh, that this is why Booker T. Washington is one of my heroes. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, any parent out there right now, I don't care what your skin color is or where you're from, get an audio copy of, of up, up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington. Play it in your car. Read it to your kids. I don't care. Just have them exposed to it. This man's courage and tenacity and optimism and hope and drive are the stuff of, of legend. And to me, it's accessible to anyone. I, where am I wrong there? You're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Um, and that's why I purposely uh, use my story. Um, because oftentimes my voice uh, or people like myself get overshadowed. Um, and, and see, the thing is also when you see people who are like extremely successful, I almost feel like those particular people who rise up from the ashes and become extremely successful from, uh, you know, terrible upbringing, they get easily dismissed, right? Like you would think, oh, that's the success story, yeah. but they get easily dismissed because even if their life was okay before, their extreme success is a rarity, right? So it's not a message that you can preach to people. Like it would be misleading for Kevin Durant to say, you can become an NBA player. Right. Statistically, that's, that's not likely. Correct. Right. So that's why I think we need to define what success. Yeah. And so for me, success has always been stability, a self-reliance, mm. right? Not living with my mother, right? Not having to ask people for money, not, um, you know, it, all these different things. It's been about stability and it's been about, um, getting better gradually and not having to rely off of other people for my success. Right. And I think that's actually what success looks like for the vast majority of Americans. Yeah. The, the majority of Americans just want an opportunity to do better. That's it. And then from that opportunity for their children to do better. Yeah. So I think it's that simple. I, you just made a point that should resonate with everyone. I am so glad you said what you just said that, you know, for Kevin Durant or LeBron James to say, follow your dreams and you can be just like me. Not, not, not really. Cause you guys are physical 
rarities and your mm-hmm. talent is is a god-given gift that not everyone gets and no matter how hard a five foot two guy tries he probably isn't going to be able to dunk so that mm-hmm. you can't just say believe in your dreams they're going to come true but for you to say that's not the example we should hold up we should hold up just an example like you adam b coleman mm-hmm. that that you can come from your background, write a book, start this really interesting group called Wrong Speak, and get a little better every day and sustain yeah. it and have stability in your life and find some contentness, contentness, contentedness, contentment and happiness <laughs> and some peace and raise your son and, you know, have a life worth living and then hopefully make it better. And look at you, you're preparing your kids to go to Japan and pursue anime. And that is so interesting to me. That is a real message. That is a real beacon of hope to offer to people that you can just get a little bit better every day. And Mm -hmm. um, I I love that. You, You started a group called Wrong Speak and people can find you at wrong. I think it's underscore speak. Um, yep. on, on Twitter, right? What, what made you start this group? What is it all about? So um, Wrong Speak initially just started off as a blog for me to kind of rant uh, <laughs> in the very beginning because I was writing the book, but then like something would happen that's not related to the book and I would just like write some article. Um, I actually stopped writing for Wrong Speak. And so it was kind of dormant for a little bit until I published my book. But then I realized, like, I wanted Ron Speak to be more than me. I wanted other people to write because I felt how uh, cathartic it was to to actually, like, finally express myself. And so my my journey from the beginning was just trying to get people like, hey, you want to write an article? I'll publish it, you know, just to get them to, to open themselves up. And um, now we've come to the point where I have an editor um, and I have a few paid writers um, that I pay, you know, per article. Um, I'm not wealthy or anything like that. And um, and actually, basically, until recently, I didn't really have like a pay model, right? So everything that I was spending was out of my own pocket. Wow. Um, my book sales would go towards Wrong Speak. Okay. Um, if I would do a speaking engagement, it would go towards Wrong Speak, or at least sitting in an account ready to be used for Wrong Speak. So this this hasn't been a, a business endeavor or anything like that. I, I really mean uh, about I'm really serious about helping people to express themselves, helping people uh, to give them an avenue um, to say that you can you can do what I did. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I was just some guy who decided to to write a book and decided to express himself. You can do the same thing and give them a platform. And so. I've always seen I've always seen myself as uh, the bigger my platform gets, it'll translate into wrong speaking. It'll translate into one of the writers that writes for my publication. So it, I want that to be an avenue. Yeah, it, it's it's really really cool. Um, and and by the way, you've written for you've been published in the New York Post, Newsweek, The Federalist, uh, Post Millennial. I mean, you've you've done a lot of writing, and that's kind of how I found you. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's been really inspiring to see. And it's so it's 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 really cool to meet you because your whole countenance, what you're trying to preach. And it's not even really preach. You're trying to engage people in this topic of uh, 
getting out of the victimhood mindset and doing it on your own. That, that right. every individual is capable of doing this. And with that, I'll give you the final, the final thought for the podcast. What, what's your, what's your bottom line here, Adam, that you want people to, <laughs> to take away? I think the bottom line is that, um, you know, I was a guy just like anybody else who just worked a normal job. Um, and I got tired of the media speaking for me, uh, in a, in the case of race, especially, um, and determining what, what I think and how I feel. Um, and, and even other black conservatives, um, speaking for me as far as how I feel about this particular thing, even if I generally agree with them, that's not how I would say it. That's not how I would interpret it. Um, and, and I just basically wanted an avenue to express myself and wanted my own voice out there. Right. And I think my voice is very similar to other people's voice where I don't have a hard stance on a lot of things. Right. I question a lot of things. Um, but I think there, there, there's a, a level of morality that we don't talk about. Um, and there's a level of, uh, personhood within every topic that we are avoiding because of hard politics and culture. Yeah. So that's why I advocate for people to, to express themselves because if you don't, other people are going to speak for you. Write your own story. Live your own yeah. story. It's, it's a great message. He is the president of Ain't Blackistan, which <laughs> I, I have a feeling is a reference to, to Joe Biden saying, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Exactly <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I interpreted <laughs> that. Uh, what a pleasure to meet you and talk to you, Adam. And again, I, I encourage people to check out the book. Uh, black victim to black victor also at wrong underscore speak on Twitter. You'll find his stuff, as I said, in a lot of different publications and it's so reasoned and thoughtful. And now you know why, because uh, he's reasoned and thoughtful. It's been a pleasure to meet you, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been sideline sanity. Be brave, do good and check out the book. Black victor to uh, black victim to black victor. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Well, Sideline Sanity, we are very proud to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals, and we're joined by Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. Charles, we are hearing now that this is not transitional inflation. This is not a bump in the road. This inflation is going to be here a while. What, what, does that, what does that tell you? You know, that's the scary thing. Um, I think, you know, economies and, and, and such like that, they can deal with small jars. We have a unique situation. We had a Fed that waited much too long to react to the situation, calling inflation transitory for a year when everyone knew it wasn't. But more importantly than that, coming out now saying this is going to be here. This is long term. This is not short term. We're going to have elevated rates for the long term. And why that gets really scary is that means the cost of doing business is going to be elevated for years, which means the cost of goods are going to be elevated for years, which means if companies can't make enough money, they will go out of business. This is why we, we hear some of your bigger companies are already talking about layoffs. So it's a unique situation. The Fed found themselves in a very bad place. And they reacted way too slow. And this is why we're at where we're at. So if I'm an investor, then 
what's why do I want gold and silver in my portfolio? What what will that do for me? You know, that that's a great question. And that's a question we get a lot. And and really what gold and silver do, um, they act as the hedge against the dollar weakness. They act as a hedge against the other markets. And we know that the Dow and, and all of your markets, all your indices are, are, are pulling back, right? That's not the issue. It's not what's already happened. It's what's yet to come. And that's where we, we need to prepare. So depending on who you listen to and, and the research that you do, you know, there are case studies of saying expect to see another 25, 20 to 25% pullback in your equities markets based on interest rates and loans and, and the bond markets they're suffering as well. No one's going out to buy bonds knowing that they're going to be um, an increased return on them in three months. It makes no sense. So that leaves you in a position of what to do with your money and how to protect yourself. This is where gold and silver come in. This is why we say this is a long-term play. You buy it, you forget about it, let it do its, its job. And its job is to go up over time as the dollar gets weaker as the purchasing power gets less, gold and silver increase. It protects that purchasing power. And that's the great thing about it. And there's your bottom line and why you need to call Legacy Precious Metals or go download their investor's guide at LegacyPreciousMetals.com. Charles, it's always good to talk to you because these are nerve-wracking times for people. You know, it, it's just the fact of the matter is, as we were told by the, the Fed chair, there's going to be some pain. So if people know that they've got something solid sitting in their investment portfolio, I think they're going to feel a little bit better, right? Absolutely. And we, you know, when we look at the actions that have happened just recently, I mean, the Fed has taken a very unique stance and they've done something very um, extraordinary. Three quarters of a basis points raises months in a row. That's one of the largest raises you've ever seen in the Fed through the history of the Fed. And it's not just once. One time is shocking. Here we are on the third month now, and we'll probably do another half a, half a basis point next month or, or later this month, possibly even three quarters of a point. So when you look at that and you say that number is going to grow to where the Fed interest rates will be about 5%, unheard of. That means the interest rate to you and I, if that's what banks paid to borrow money, we're going to see, you know, credit cards will probably be over 28, 30% again. You're going to see home loans coming in nine, 10, possibly even 11%. And it's, it's a scary time. And this is why we say, okay, know this coming. Don't be afraid. You, you now are aware. So now you can protect yourself. And that's what we help people do. Don't be afraid. Prepare. Just prepare yourself. And like I say every day, I trust Legacy Precious Metals when it comes to investing in gold and silver. So go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Charles and his group can answer any and all of your questions. Charles, thank you so much. My pleasure as always.